listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How is everybody doing this fine spring break Sunday? We are in John's Gospel. Once again, we're in chapter 11. This is the story of Lazarus, which many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. Um, We're going to tackle this story in two parts, however. This week's going to end on something of a cliffhanger. Uh, But I think it is a helpful cliffhanger to end on. If you're not familiar with the story of Lazarus, this man, by the end of today, will be dead. Uh, By the end of next week, he will not be dead anymore. Uh, the, the thing with this story, uh, though, as it is often read and known and heard and preached, is that it becomes so familiar to us, we often jump all the way to the end, even as we start at the beginning. We know uh, that Lazarus will be resurrected. We know this. We've heard this story so many times. Uh, what, what happens, though, is we fail to really sit in the fact that Lazarus dies, and, and, and the, the verses that build up to that point. And so there's so much here in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, where we'll be today, uh, that I, I think is really helpful for God's people to meditate on. And so I want to help us do that. And uh, let, me, let me pray to that end. My name is Robert, by the way. I'm one of the pastors of Crosspoint, and uh, I'm, I'm delighted just to go to this text together uh, with you all. So let's pray. Um, Father, would you, uh, would you reveal to us precious truths from your word this morning? Would you give us eyes and ears that we might comprehend uh, the, the beauty of your word, not the wisdom of man, uh, but rather the, the truth of the gospel? Um, Lord, your, your Holy Spirit has spoken to us by your word. It is as if you are speaking to us. Your word carries that very authority Uh, And so, Father, help us to be diligent to attend to it this morning. I pray that you would build us up, that you would feed your sheep as we uh, gather around this feast. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And and while you're turning there in your Bibles, let me just mention that tonight we'll be gathering again at 5 o'clock for our regular Sunday evening service. Uh, This evening in particular, um, Brad will be teaching on spiritual gifts, and so I encourage you to come out to that. We'll be singing hymns, as we always do. We'll be spending some time in prayer as a church family as well, so please be here tonight at 5. Hopefully you found John 11 now. Let me read it for us. I'm going to make some comments along the way, and then uh, we'll have a couple points to consider. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's pause here just to kind of make sure we're tracking. 
Up to this point in John's gospel, we haven't actually met Mary or Martha, certainly not Lazarus. Uh, But yet John, even here, references a story that would have been very well known to believers at this time. In fact, it's so well known that even though he mentions it, he won't himself bring it up until chapter 12, the story of Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. This is such a well-known story among God's people then, as I'm sure it still is today. Uh, And yet John doesn't breach that subject until chapter 12. Uh, the, the point I'm making, however, is that Mary and Martha, even Lazarus, these people are very well known to Jesus. They're very well known among God's people as people that we would consider to be really close friends of the Lord. Uh, they, they have so many different interactions with him. We see them uh, initially meet in Luke's gospel where Mary and Martha welcome Jesus into their home. And of course, Mary is very preoccupied with making sure everything is just right for the Lord while, while Mary, her sister, is at Jesus' feet just listening to what he has to say. We don't meet Lazarus then, but there's this trio, this, this sibling group here that are so close to the Lord. Uh, and, and I want you to notice as well that when they, when they reach out to him, uh, and well, this isn't really, this isn't actually something that you would have thought otherwise necessarily, but, but I think for us, it's important to put our heads in the right spot. This isn't via text. Uh, this isn't a, a phone call. They didn't send Jesus a quick email and let him know, hey, Lazarus is sick. They sent a messenger. I mean, somebody had to travel for at least a day, I believe with a message for Jesus regarding Lazarus's health. Um, for us, we can, we can communicate with people just about any way we want, any time of day, uh, for better or worse. Uh, but, but in this period of history, uh, this is a very serious thing that's taking place. Uh, it indicates a level of severity to Lazarus's illness that we just might not be thinking about. I want to help you think through this story and really feel the gravity of it. They felt it necessary to pay somebody to travel a day to tell Jesus himself what was going on with Lazarus. It tells you something about the closeness of their friendship, but also of the seriousness of what's going on with Lazarus. Let's keep going. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? If you recall in the previous chapter, Jesus had been in Judea. He had said and done some things that people found offensive more or less. And their reaction to him was to consider stoning him to death. And so Jesus and his disciples left Judea. They went across the Jordan River where they are now where he has received this message. But Bethany is back on the other side. It's closer to Jerusalem. It's it's closer to, it's in the Judean area. And so Jesus has received this message. He says, okay, well, let's go to Judea again. But the disciples are very concerned about this, understandably. They're going to stone you. You're going there again. But Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, He does not stumble, 
because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, then he will recover. If he's able to rest, then he's on, he's on the mend. Jesus had spoken of his death, however. But they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Some translations will put it even more bluntly. Guys, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's a heavy story. There's a lot going on. We've got Lazarus. But, but what really seems to, to take maybe center stage in this portion of the narrative has maybe just as much to do, if not more to do, with Jesus and his own safety. Jesus, by returning to Judea, is, is really only going to hasten his death. And so this, this portion of the narrative has so much to do with death, not just as we think about Lazarus, but also as we think about Christ, you, you see the disciples' very understandable trepidation at the thought that by doing this, they're, they're only going to witness the stoning of their master. But Jesus is so confident in his insistence that they go. He, he says it three times in verse 7. He says, let us go to Judea again. And notice he doesn't say, let us go to Bethany. Though certainly that's part of his plan. Let us go to Judea. The, the place where I have very few friends. He says in verse 11, I go to awaken Lazarus. And then again in verse 15, but let us go to him. Even eventually in verse 16, Thomas gets the message and he determines with a lot of courage and boldness for a guy known as the doubter that, that we should all, let's just go. Even if it means our death, we're gonna go with our Lord. Uh, the implications are so clear. Jesus is on a deadly mission. But, but I want you to see that it is a mission. It is something that he has been tasked with doing, and Jesus himself knew this. He spoke of this regularly throughout his ministry, and John, makes, he makes no mistake in letting us know that Jesus is always looking ahead to Jerusalem. He is always going towards the inevitable cross. That is, his, that is where his face is set from John chapter 1 through to the end. If you think about chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, which we, we read a few weeks ago about the man who was born blind, Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Doesn't that sound familiar? Didn't we just read something very similar here in chapter 11? 
You see, Jesus is not beholden to anyone's will. He's not beholden to anyone's timetable, but that of his Father alone. Amen. And let me tell you something. That, that is one of the greatest things you can know and be on the receiving end of when it comes to Jesus. He, he's not beholden to anybody's plans. He's not beholden even to yours. He, he's not worried about what you think or what you want him to do or what you think is best, but rather he is only consumed with the thought that his father, his will is the most important thing. Amen. He wants to do his father's will. And that, that is incredible good news. And he knows that his time in, 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 on earth in this stage of his ministry is very short. So we gotta make the most of it. In chapter 10, Verses 37 and 38, he says, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. That, that's what we read last week. And then here he makes that point, very, a very similar point once again. Daylight is running out. We only get 12 hours of daylight give or take. And while there's light, while the light is present, we have to be about the work of the Lord. But you know, he even kind of turns it a little bit to, to look more inwardly, even at his disciples, or help them to look inwardly, because he points out, he says in, in verse 10, he says, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. There's, there's more going on than just walking by the light of the sun. There's something at stake here in this work that Jesus is about that his disciples themselves might actually be indwelled by the light of the world. That they might also be able to go about the Father's business. What do we make of this story what, what do we, how can we, what do we walk away from this narrative with? Uh, there are two things that stand out to me and, and that I want to, to show you. Number one, Jesus loves his friends uniquely. Maybe you need to parse that out a little bit. Jesus loves his friends. He loves them. He cares about them. He wants to, to serve them. We see that happen again and again. Uh, he, he absolutely loves them. And he, he loves them uniquely. He loves his friends in a way that, that really is set apart as if just for them. Consider Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Jesus' love for them is never once in doubt. You, you can't, you cannot walk away from this chapter. Even as Lazarus dies, you cannot walk away from this thinking anything other than Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. John makes it so clear even at the very beginning as all of this is unfolding. In, in verse 3, Mary and Martha, they write or they send for Jesus and this messenger, he, he relays to him that Lazarus is ill. But you notice he doesn't actually use Lazarus's name. Now maybe, maybe Jesus knows who the message is from. It's from Mary and Martha. 
Uh, that kind of narrows down, you know, who's sick. But they don't feel the need to tell him, hey, Lazarus is sick. Instead, they say, the one whom you love is ill. The one whom you love, no name, just this incredible title. An incredible description. I mean, can you, can you imagine, you, sh- you should imagine, especially if you're a Christian, if, if, you, if you know the Lord, if you are one of his friends, you, you, you must think about this. Can you imagine summing up your entire identity, every element of who you are, good, bad, and different, the things that, that the world rejoices in and, and, and exults in when they look at you, the things that the world sneers at when they see you, uh, your, your whole history, your entire future, however hopeful or hopeless it may appear to be, to sum up your entire identity in this way, the one whom Jesus loves. Man. I, I imagine that's certainly how Lazarus thought of himself, but it's definitely how Mary and Martha think of Lazarus. They look at their brother and they think, this is the one whom Jesus loves. That, 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 that to me is just, it's just incredible. I, I, want, I want to think of the Lord thinking of me that way. But here's the thing, that, that is how we can think of, of ourselves when we think of the Lord. This isn't just wishful thinking. This isn't something that you just kind of stamp on a mug or a t-shirt and sell for five bucks. I mean, this is, this is life-changing. The one whom Jesus loves. And when you, when you contrast that with all the myriad ways we tend to identify ourselves in this world. And there are plenty of good ways to identify ourselves. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the son of so-and-so. I'm, I'm the, I'm the, the, I don't know, I, I'm a graduate of whatever. I'm, I, I, I'm an expert, such and such. I mean, there, there are a lot of good ways to identify ourselves. And of course, we know, and this world is so filled with really, really sinful and even wicked ways to identify ourselves. Where, where this world is so intent on self-discovery and self-expression and how do you feel about yourself? That's your identity. Let's find all the ways we can kind of uh, intersect your identity with other kinds of identities and, and let's make this sort of hodgepodge. Let's really define you and set you apart in all the ways that make you completely different from everybody else. What part of the world are you from? What, what language do you speak? What things do you deal with? What, 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 what struggles do you have? Or what joys and, and, and delights do you experience that none of us get to experience? Oh, there's, there's so many ways that we identify ourselves. But when you can summarize yourself by saying, he whom you love, she whom the Lord loves, and there's, there's, there's freedom in that, isn't there? Man, doesn't that just like lift the burden off your back? I don't have to be anybody. 
don't have to do anything. I don't have to know anything other than Christ. And, and at the end of the day, I am the one whom he loves. Mm. Let's keep going. Verses 5 and 6 point out that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We knew he loved Lazarus, at least Mary and Martha thought that, but John wants us to know, Jesus really does love Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And that's, I mean, that's the inspired word of God. I mean, this is a, this is a declaration. Now, Jesus really, he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He really did. So, what does it say? When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What do we make of that? He, he loved them. There's no question. There's no, we, we don't have room to doubt that about him. So, verse 6, another way of thinking is, therefore... He acted this way. He chose this course of action, which was to stay put. Now, okay, what, what, what does this mean? It, it doesn't necessarily mean, though some people have interpreted it this way, and I think it's a possibility, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus simply waited until he knew Lazarus was dead to leave. Though I think that's within the realm of possibility. But as we'll find out next week, Lazarus, when he, when he dies, by the time Jesus arrives, he's been dead for a while. There's a really good chance that Lazarus could have died even as the messenger gave him the message. Jesus, nevertheless, doesn't, he doesn't hasten to Bethany. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, hitch a ride and rush over there out of his love for Miriam, Martha, and Lazarus to, to comfort them immediately, to, to act on Lazarus' behalf right away. He, he, he doesn't send a message back. And yet, we're meant to understand this not as something in contradiction to his love, but, but as as an expression of that love. Well, that's a hard truth to consider. That's, that's a hard thing, I think, for our ears to receive. But let's, let's, let's think about what, what this means about the love of Jesus. How, what, what does this tell us about the nature of Jesus' love for his people? One thing I think it shows us is that Jesus' love is always undeserved. It's always undeserved. There's nothing Mary or Martha have done here to to convince Jesus to to act a certain way or do a certain thing. He's not rushing back to them, but he he loves them. This is just a statement of, of fact really independent of anything that they have done, which up to this point in John's gospel, we haven't seen anything of them. Jesus simply loves them. It is utterly undeserved. It has nothing to do with their merits. It it is simply an act of, of his grace, of his kindness, of his own 
volition, that he loves them. But Jesus' love is also often unexpected, or, or, or it's expressed in ways that we might not expect to see it. Maybe you're reading this story or having heard it, you think, well, if that had been me, I, I, I would have I rushed to Mary and Martha. I'd have to be right by their side, and yet Jesus doesn't do that, but it's not because he doesn't love them, it's because he does love them. What we have to understand is that oftentimes his love is expressed in a way that we might not understand. Jesus' love is sometimes unconventional. That is to say, it's not, it's not necessarily efficient, certainly not the most direct. And, and I think for us, we, we really prize efficiency. I know I do. We, we, re, we want to we minimize the amount of time we're in the car. We want to minimize the amount of time we have to wait for our food to heat up. We, we, we want to fast forward through commercials and DVR everything so we don't have to deal with anything but just the thing at hand that is most important to us. But that's not how Jesus' love works. It's more thoughtful than that. Jesus' love is, is more measured than that. Not, not because he's withholding, but because he's much more deliberate in how he expresses and doles it out. The love of Jesus is not a flippant thing. It's, it's a, very, a very direct and deliberate thing. Which is such good news for us because it, it means that our Savior is not flippant towards us means that our Savior's love towards us is not a mirage or an illusion or some sort of robotic gesture, but, but Jesus' love, unconventional though it may be, is absolutely certain. Jesus' love is always independent. Mary and Martha don't give Jesus any, any uh, directions. They, you know, they don't tell him, hey, the one whom you love is ill. You would probably do well to head on over. You know, we don't know how much time he has left or whatever, but maybe, or, or maybe, hey, you don't have to actually come here. You just say the word from where you are and, and things will certainly improve. They just want to let him know that Lazarus is ill and they're gonna kind of leave it to him as to what to do. It, it's, it's very strikingly similar to what happens at the wedding in Cana where, where Mary, Jesus' mother, approaches him and she says that they're out of wine. And, and Jesus, he, he hesitates because it's not quite the, the right moment, uh, but, but his mom knows. His moms tend to know, and she, she tells the servant, she says, you just, you just do what he says, and, and he acts on that, and he, he does this incredible miracle, but it's very, it's very deliberate. She doesn't tell him how to do it, she just entrusts it to him, because she knows the love of Jesus. Mary and Martha know the love of Jesus. They know that, that everything he does is done in love, especially for his people, and they entrust themselves they entrust their brother to his care because of that consider the unique love that jesus has for his saints consider this romans chapter 8 verses 38 and 39 tells us that and this is paul speaking he says i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at that, death, life, angels, rulers, the future, the past, height, depth, anything. These are often good things. Oftentimes these are bad things. That's not an indication of the love of the Lord. Whether good or bad, high or low, anything that goes on in the life of God's saints is not, is not a reflection of his love for them. But you, but you know what is? The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord who, who gave himself as a ransom for many. That, that's the height, that's the expression of God's love. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says that God is blessed. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through, Christ, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved." The love of Jesus is not some generic love, but, but it is very purposeful, maybe inefficient at times from our perspective. M maybe, maybe it doesn't re rely as much on our wisdom as we would have it. That's for the best. Because when Jesus sets his love on somebody, he saves them not because of anything that they have done to influence him, but because of the overwhelming influence of his love on them. Uh, nothing can thwart the loving purposes of God in Christ Jesus. Not sin, not death, not all the powers of hell. Nothing can stop the love of Christ for his people. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can slow it down. Which then raises the question, why does Jesus stay put? Why does Jesus stay put? Maybe, maybe we can reconcile in our minds that the love of Jesus takes all kinds of, of forms and maybe approaches us in ways that we wouldn't expect, but, but what, what all is going on here that Jesus would express his love in this way by, by instead of immediately rushing to Bethany, staying where he is. How does that express his love? Point number two, Jesus' glory is our greatest good. Jesus loves his friends uniquely. He loves them in a way that, that cannot be compared to the love that he has for just the world in general. We think of John 3.16. Uh, 
for, the, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and yet we also have to reconcile with passages like what we just read in Romans and Ephesians where it is clear that Jesus loves in a particular way his sheep for whom he died. That, that, is, that is true. And, and it, is, it is true in conjunction with the fact that our greatest good, the highest expression of Jesus' love for his people is that he would display the glory of God in and through himself. So Lazarus' death was meant, Jesus tells us, to reveal the glory of God and, and not only reveal the glory of God, but in doing so to deepen belief, to deepen the faith of his disciples and, and certainly of Mary and Martha even Lazarus. Let's reconcile some statements here. If we look at verse 11, listen to this. He says, this illness, this is Jesus speaking of Lazarus, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But then at the end of the passage, in verses 14 and 15, listen to how similarly phrased this passage is. Lazarus has died, Jesus says. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Now, in verse 4, Jesus says this illness doesn't lead to death. Well, clearly it does lead to death. By the end, Jesus himself acknowledges that Lazarus is dead. What, what does he mean by that then? Was Jesus, was Jesus wrong? Hmm. But then he also points out at the, in the second half of verse 4, this is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then in the second half of that passage in 14 and 15, if you look at verse 15, he says, this is so that you may believe. There's a connection here between the death of Lazarus and between the, the, the glory of God being on display and the belief of his disciples. All these things are intertwined right now. There's a greater, there's a bigger picture going on in all of these seemingly unrelated statements. Lazarus' death is not ultimate. And so Jesus can say of him, this doesn't lead to death, not in any ultimate sort of way, that the death of Lazarus is not final. We know this because we've heard this story so many times. Lazarus is going to come back from the dead. We can hear Jesus say this illness doesn't lead to death, and we, we understand what he means. And yet, for his disciples, imagine how they felt when Jesus then says, well, actually, no, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> Whoa, this is a first. Um, Maybe you got this one wrong, but Jesus doesn't get it wrong because he knows that ultimately the death of Lazarus is not the biggest reality. It is not the greatest picture. In fact, no matter what happens next in this narrative, whether, whether we see Lazarus raised from the dead or not, Jesus tells us and he tells his disciples to think of Lazarus as being merely asleep because that's that is a better description of what's going on with Lazarus than anything else. When you're asleep, you need to be awakened. And so that's what Jesus is going to go do. But, you know, this is going to be a spoiler. Lazarus eventually dies. Again. 
does that negate the truth going on here? Does that negate what Jesus is saying? Certainly not. Jesus is putting Lazarus' death in perspective. You might object to this. As you hear this, you think, Jesus, I don't know. This doesn't sound great. You, you might object thinking that Jesus is, is really only minimizing pain, minimizing Martha and Mary's pain, even minimizing Lazarus' pain. He's the sick one. But I want you to understand that Jesus is not minimizing anything. He, he's certainly not minimizing Lazarus' illness and death. He's not minimizing Mary and Martha's suffering and mourning. He's not even minimizing the disciples' courage to stand with him as they go to Judea. He's not minimizing any of this to say, well, you guys just don't really understand. This isn't that big of a deal. What he is saying, however, what he is doing is that he's properly recognizing the magnitude of what is going on and matching it with something not just as good, but greater, which is the glory of God that might be displayed in the midst of all of this. That's what's at stake. Not Lazarus's heartbeat, not Mary and Martha's sorrow, not the disciples' own willingness to follow Jesus to death. What is at stake in all of this is the glory of the Lord. He, he's really truly honoring Lazarus' death. He's honoring Mary and Martha's pain by pointing them to the only thing that can match and in, in fact overshadow all of it, which is that the glory of God might be displayed in Jesus' own life. Maybe, maybe you don't object to that. Maybe you hear Jesus' reaction and you feel like this is, it's, it's cold, it's callous, almost kind of robotic because Jesus says a couple of times, this is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God's son. And I think oftentimes we read stuff like that and it's so foreign to our fallen minds that we would do anything for the glory of anyone else, let alone God Almighty. We just don't think about that. It sounds pious when you hear somebody else say it. Oh, for the glory of God. We think, yeah, you don't really mean that. Nobody really means that. And we hear Jesus say it and it feels so rote to us because this is not naturally how we think. But for Jesus, it absolutely is how he thinks. He's not, he's not being robotic. There's not some sort of unfeeling devotion to God's glory that just matters more to him than, la than loving and caring for Lazarus and his sisters. That's not happening. Jesus' commitment to God's glory and consequently his own glory that would be the vessel by which this is all displayed is actually the height of love for people who desperately need a glimpse of the fullness of God. You think, Lazarus, what, <clears throat> what he needed was salvation. He needed to be, he needed to be revived, resuscitated. He, he is, his death could have been prevented and it should have been prevented. Jesus, who knows all things, even the fact that Lazarus is dead, though there's no messenger to tell him that. Jesus, who knows all things, could have surely acted on his behalf and intervened with his father on Lazarus' behalf and, and, and brought him from the dead or prevented death itself. We've seen him do it in other people's lives. But that's, that's not what he does because, because that would not be the most loving thing for him to have done. 
the most loving thing for Jesus to do is, in fact, what he does, which is wait and glorify the Lord through whatever comes next. That's, that's so important for us to grasp. For, for, for God to be glorified means that Jesus the Son must also be glorified. That, that's what his mission is. He says, if the Father is glorified, the, the Son also is, is being glorified. That's how this works. That's my mission, is that the, the glory of God would be on display through and in me. Not just for its own sake, but so that you may believe. So that you may believe. Now the disciples, they believe a lot about Jesus already. They know him, they've seen him. They're all kind of <clears throat> hard-headed. Uh, even Thomas here, he says, yeah, well, let's go. We'll all die together as though Thomas can like die with, he doesn't know what he's talking about. None of the disciples seem to really know what they're talking about until after Jesus' resurrection. And even then, you know. Um, but Jesus is not, he, he's about not just bringing people to faith, but deepening their faith, strengthening their their closeness to him, helping them to get a, a better and better glimpse, a, a more clearer and, and a clearer and clearer vantage point on the glory of God. That's what's at stake, and that's, that's how he is displaying his love. This is what the world desperately needs. And we talk about all the ways we we want people to affirm our own identities, good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, apart from seeing our identity in relation to the Lord, the, all of it is just kind of, it's, it's just useless. It's garbage. Um, that, that may be how we think of our identity. Oftentimes it's, it's how we think about the love of the Lord. You, you love me uh, best when you do what I want you to do or when you act in a way that I think is right and good and righteous. And, and for my good. What this world desperately needs, what you and I desperately need, is that the Lord would not be beholden to what we think, but that he would instead reveal himself to us. And all of his splendor, and all of his glory, and all of his majesty, and all of his might, and all of his eminence, this is not some far-off God. The God of the Bible, he, he has come to us. Not to hide himself. Not to be standoffish or apathetic or passive towards us. But that we might know him. That we might see him for who he is. That we might be witnesses to his glory and then, therefore, be changed. <clears throat> we don't need a gospel that caters to our own sense of self-importance or worldliness. We need a vision of God's glory in Christ. The world, the world needs that. 
If you are a friend of Christ, if, if you follow Jesus, if you have entrusted yourself to him, if, if you acknowledge your own sin and you realize Jesus is the one who has paid for it all, he's the one who loved me and died and gave himself for me that I might live and know him. If you, if you are one of those people, which I imagine in a room like this is probably many, maybe most of you, what the world needs from you is not some pithy statements or <clears throat> some great uh, analogy or, 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 or some uh, sort of just generic niceness. The, the world needs to see the glory of the Lord. And if you know the Lord and you have been a witness to that glory, then the world needs you to be part of revealing that glory to them. That, that's what we are. That, that, that is why the name Christian even came about. A, a little Christ, a little, little model uh, meant to point to Jesus. That's what we are. We, we're not just like Jesus in, in the way that we live and act as if sort of our actions are kind of the, the summary. No, we're, we, we are like Jesus in that we are meant to reflect the glory of the Lord as well. And that even as, we, even as we live in this world, fallen as it is, with our own sin and frailty, we, we project the glory of the Lord to others. That, that's what the world needs from us as individuals. It's what the world needs from us as, as a church. Even as a local expression of the church. We exist not for ourselves. Not to just come in and receive and be blessed and and have some sort of sense of belonging or community as good and valuable as those things are. And we gather together as witnesses to the glory of the Lord. And when we leave from this place, we are witnesses to the glory of the Lord. We, we, we want to reflect who he is to the world. And so God's glory is not at odds with Jesus' love because when God's glory is revealed in Christ Jesus, belief is instilled in his people. Exalting the Son, and of course we know where this is going, right? That the exaltation of Jesus reaches its climax, its pinnacle at the cross. Where Jesus is lifted up, as John has already pointed us to when, when talking about the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's where our gaze is always being drawn in this gospel. It's where Jesus is always looking. And when he points people to the glory of the Lord through the Son, that's, that's where he's looking. As Jesus is exalted at the cross, as Jesus is exalted in his death, we find life. That's why Jesus going to Judea is about more than just rescuing Lazarus, but something even better is happening, which is that the son himself would die in his place and in ours. When Jesus is lifted up, people live. The implications of this are not just for Lazarus or for his sisters, but also for the disciples who are about to go with him to Jerusalem to witness his own crucifixion. How desperately do they need to see what takes place in Lazarus' life for them to better understand what's about to happen in the reality, which is that Jesus will die instead. And, and, and Jesus' own resurrection has, has implications that, that go well beyond Lazarus getting a few more years 
on this earth. God's people, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the disciples and, and think about yourself in your own life. I mean, what, what is there to slow you down or, 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 or stop you in following the Lord? If, if, if even death itself is really just a means of God's exaltation and of, and of your own faith in him growing deeper. We look at suffering, we look at sin, we look at death itself as, as at odds with the gospel, and certainly death is the final enemy to be defeated, isn't it? But the Lord, he wields these things in his hand for his own purposes. He uses them for his glory. And because of that, God's people, we can storm the gates of hell when we know that death itself is really only an opportunity for the glory of God to be put on display. And when we realize and see that that is our best and highest good, that that is where Jesus' love for us is made utterly, irre- irrevocably clear, oh man, what, what, what can we not do? I mean, we, can, we can confess our sin, we can lay down our preferences, we can weather persecution, we can even face death when we, when we understand this about our Lord. So how, how do we behold the glory of God in Christ? How do we know the love of God? The, the whole point of this story is not about Lazarus's resurrection. Uh, we haven't even, we don't even know if he's going to be alive after this, by the way, right? I mean, we haven't actually gotten there. You have to come back next week. But you see how the point of this is not, it's not sad. Lazarus is dead, and yet there is this strange hopefulness. And it's not just because we know how this ends, but it's because of what Jesus has shown his disciples here, and what Jesus has shown us, which is that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Because when his glory is on display, we know him better and truer. Our sin is dealt with because of Jesus' death, and therefore we can have true life. So we look to the cross, we point others to the cross. That's where we see God's glory, and that's how we know his love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we, we need this reminder on a minute-to-minute basis. We generically know you love us. We've sung the songs. We have, we have read your word and, and we, we know that you love us. We assume that. But oftentimes it's, it's for reasons that aren't, aren't the right reasons. We think we've done something. We, we think we've earned your favor. We think that just intrinsically it's just just who we are, that of course you should love us. Why wouldn't you? 
Father, we are enemies to your cause. That is what we were born into. There is nothing about us that would attract you to us. In fact, because of our sin, we, we, are, we are truly an offense to you. We are unlovable. Certainly not worthy of it. Father, you have determined to love us. You, you loved us and therefore sent your son to us. How often do we think that, that Jesus' death on the cross was where your love for us began? No, that's where your love for us was fulfilled. The very fact that you sent your son to us, that you gave him this mission, that he would die so that we might live, it proves, it shows your love for us. Father, we confess that so often we we think of your love in our own terms. We want to see it displayed according to our wisdom. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, you have, you have not taken our advice, but instead you have chosen to display your love for us in the most glorious way, by exalting your son, lifting him up, giving him the, the mission, sending him for the purpose that you gave him, that he would die in our place, that he would be lifted up and exalted, even as we descend into what we think of as death. There is resurrection hope because of Jesus. There, there is the hope of life because of him as we witness your glory, as we see you for who you are, and as we gather around your throne and worship you. That's what you've redeemed us for. And there is no more loving thing you could have done. Father, make us a people that are eager to display that love. Make us a people that are eager to, to remember that love and to, to dwell and meditate on that. To look, to look to your glory and know that you have drawn near to us. Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.